All right, well, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to get through the whole chapter. And I'm trying to give some time for us at the end of our, our study just to respond in joy and worship. And if need be, you can do some business with the Lord. We're talking still about this group of believers that were Jews. They had put their faith and trust that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the Messiah, that he died and he rose from the dead. But they're, they're, they're getting pushback from family, friends, and community. And so in this chapter, um, we're going to continue to see the author putting out um, biblical answers for why they are followers of Jesus Christ. We begin um, dividing the first major sections, going to be verses 1 through 10, where we're going to see the limitations of the first tabernacle or the first temple. And we'll begin by reading just verses 1 through 5, where we get a layout of the earthly sanctuary. So let me read those verses. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which the lampstand was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of alls, which had a golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, and which were the golden pot, that had manna, Aaron's rod that had budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So I'm not going to give you a big in-depth study. But here's just an image that shows you the two chambers. So the chamber on the right would have been the sanctuary. The back chamber was the place called the holiest of alls. In this next slide, we see that as they came into that first chamber, the sanctuary, uh, the wall would have been lined with uh, 10, so on either side, five on either side, 10 altogether, lampstands, a table of showbread, and an altar of incense. So the, the candelabra was there to give light because there was no windows. And there was no light bulb. So they were dependent on this just to be able to get around. And then also there was the table of showbread. And on the table of showbread, there was uh, 12 pieces of bread that represented the nation. And it spoke of the presence of God in their midst. Also, um, although it's not mentioned in this section, we do know from other places in the Bible, there was the altar of incense. Fire, and it was burning on this continually. They would come in the morning, the evening. They would be putting on um, incense on it. It would make a wonderful aroma there in, in this room. And also uh, would have kind of given it just this, that, like a, a fog in there as it would have, would have come up. So this was the sanctuary. And in this part, um, the, the priest would have often gone. But into the second part, behind the veil, was the Ark of the Covenant. This is a rectangular box overlaid with gold. It had a lid on top of it. And does anybody know what the lid was called? The mercy seat. So don't confuse the mercy seat with the idea that there was a chair which mercy was kind of shown from. Um, God is merciful. He sits upon a throne. But the word mercy seat is referring to the lid that was on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the ark, we're told that there was a, a jar of manna that they had preserved. There was the, the uh, almond uh, staff. 
that had budded and um, there was blossoms that showing that Moses and Aaron were the leaders and uh, they were to be uh, followed in the wilderness. And then there was also the Ten Commandments. And so that, he says, we know all of these things existed there. Now I'm showing you this because when you get to heaven, you're going to see it. So don't act like you've never seen it. You don't want to be the country bumpkin that's like, geez, what's that? You, know? you, you want to say, yeah, I know what that is. I've been waiting for this day that I could actually get a closer look at these uh, 10 you know, candelabras and menorahs that exist here. Uh, you're going to see this when you get to heaven. You're going to walk through it. Jesus has already walked through it for you, but you'll get a chance. Let's keep on reading um, of the restrictions of this earthly sanctuary. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. So he says, you got all of this that's going on, but this is what it all means. You can't go in. The Holy Spirit is trying to emphasize this, that only one man out of the entire planet, once a year, a descendant of Aaron could go in with blood to sprinkle it for a very specific purpose upon the mercy seat to deal with our sins. That's all. But that most intimate place where the Shekinah glory of the Lord went, you know, the cloud of the Lord, if you would have gone behind the, the, the veil and those times when the presence of the Lord was there, it would have been a thick cloud. It would have been this, you know, kind of a, a heavy haze kind of experience. And so they would go into this and they would go into the presence of the Lord. But the Holy Spirit saying, yeah, but only one guy got to do that. And he only got to go in once a year, which tells us this, that it was not yet made manifest. There at the end of the middle of verse eight, where it says was not yet, that word yet gives some hope, doesn't it? There's the idea, but it's coming. It's going to happen. You can't go in now. You can't go to that place, but it's coming, and you will be able to do that. Now, in the first part of the uh, temple, they were attending to the oil on the lamps. They were attending to the bread on the table. They were attending to the coals on the fire and putting the incense on the altar of incense. So these things were constantly being attended to, but you had to be a priest to even do that. You could come to the temple but if you were a Gentile, you couldn't come in all the way. You had to stay in the court of the Gentiles. If you were a Jew, then you could come in. And then if you're a, a priest, then you could go minister inside. But it had to be one man on a specific day, the Day of Atonement, where you could go all the way in. So the whole structure of the tabernacle and the calendar says you can't have a full exposure and experience to the Lord. It's coming. It's coming. Now, if you think about where they were in Egypt in bondage, where all they saw was paganism and idolatry all around them, they're rescued, they're brought out, and now they're told, build a tabernacle like this, and your priests will wear that, and they will offer these sacrifices, and you can do this, and the Lord will do that. This was amazing to them. Going from nothing visible to all of this was ordained of God, it was beautiful, but it was all 
indicating something. You can only come so far. The fellowship that Adam had lost in the garden had not been fully restored. We're moving towards it, but it hasn't come yet. Look at verses 9 and 10, where we read of the redemption limitations associated with the earthly sanctuary. What, what, what level of redemption, what kind of work was done? Verse 9, it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings, and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation, which are the days in which we live. We live in the days of reformation. We live in the days of the new covenant. We live in the days where we have been made perfect in Christ Jesus. We live in the days in which our conscience has been made clean and clear that tells us, come and worship the Lord. I mean, the very fact that you felt so comfortable to raise your hands and lift your voices and to commune with God and express this to him, it tells you that you're accepted in the beloved. You're accepted by God, but there are many people who are just like, you can't come. Your conscience was saying, you're not welcome to come all the way in. You can only come so far. The law of Moses served until the greater covenant would come. So they would come and they would bring these sacrifices. But all these rituals were symbolic of the coming work of Christ. That's what it says in verse 9. It was symbolic for the present time. The worshiper never had their conscience clear from their sin. We read in Hebrews 10, 4, for, it's, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So it was only a covering. They had a sense of, I did what I needed to do, but they knew that the next day they were going to have to offer something else up again. And so every day, all day long, every day of the week, sacrifices were being made every year the day of the atonement was being offered up the freedom of guilt never came as you know it today under Jesus Christ the conscience was always there all who worshiped in the temple they did it in faith anticipating the sacrifice that they were offering one day would be fully taken care of by the Lord not knowing that it was going to be Jesus of Nazareth. They did, that wasn't in their vocabulary. They didn't have those words. They didn't know Mary. They didn't know Joseph. They didn't conceive of you know, Jesus being born to the Virgin Mary and then being crucified and rising. For the, these were things that were being indicated in prophecies, but it was not all laid out. Now you can look back and you can easily see it, but it was something that was being revealed over time. But don't underestimate either what was happening because while they worshiped in faith through that, that gift or that sacrifice and it didn't fully bring them redemption, it still was, it was like a, a, a faith that was right for the present time and then it was like, but just hang on. Because when Jesus came and he was that the, the full realization of it, all those who had worshipped in the past, as he offered himself up and went to the cross, died and rose from the dead, they, they had all of that transferred back to them retroactively, if you will, because they had worshipped in faith. So they are redeemed because of the faith that they have. Now today, each of us must make that decision for ourselves. 
But what a joy it is to be cleansed, to be forgiven, um, to have our conscience made clean. And I, I just want to ask you, have you received the forgiveness of your sins? Have you been, have you been liberated from the guilt and the shame that is associated with doing the wrong thing? I hope you have. And I want you to know that it's real and that it's true. If you're a person who's never come to Jesus Christ, and you probably know the heavy weight of sin, you feel that guilty conscience. But Jesus wants to liberate you. There was an old movie. I'm not telling you to go watch it, by the way, because it's been too long. But it's an old movie called The Mission. And in this, there's this guy who was a, he was a soldier, and he was feeling the guilt for all the the bloodshed that he had done. And so he tries to make things right and do penance. And he takes all of his armor and all of his weaponry and shields and helmet. And he puts it in this net, ties it up. And he begins to climb up the side of this mountain in the jungle. And he keeps falling and slipping. And he's about ready to fall off the cliff. And somebody finally cuts the rope and it goes crashing down the mountain. And he's liberated and set free. That's what Jesus does for us. But in a much more powerful way. Yeah, you know, we do things. And we, you know, we have a sense of right and wrong, and, and, and we, we do wrong things. And now there's this weight of shame and guilt. But Jesus, listen, Jesus wants to lift that from you. And you may have a totally different understanding of religion. You may think, well, I don't want to go to church, because if I go to church, then I'm going to be made to feel guilty about all the things that I've done. No, the exact opposite. Come to Jesus and be set free. Come to Jesus and be liberated of what you've done. I don't want to talk about your past mistakes. I don't want to talk about mine. Do you want to talk about yours? I didn't think so. So we, we want to talk about the freedom that we have. And, and this is what Jesus provides. Look at verse 11 through 15 where we read of the promise of better things to come. We're going to come back to this idea of conscience and a clear conscience again. Um, in verse 11, it says, But Christ came as the high priest of the good things to come, with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. So there's a promise of better things. We're going from, right, from good to, uh, to greater to perfect. And, and Jesus ministers in a more perfect environment. He ministers not with the, in the tabernacle that was in Jerusalem, he ministers in the one in heaven. This is in contrast to Aaron and, and those that served under that priesthood. How awesome it is going to be to see this temple in heaven and to know that Jesus, when he died on the cross, came according to the order of Melchizedek, brought himself and his shed blood as a sacrifice, walked into the temple, sprinkled the mercy seat, and ripped that veil in heaven, which actually ended up ripping, we'll get this in our next study, and ripped it on earth as well, indicating, come on in. I mean, what do you think it's going to be like to walk into that and see that for the first time? Knowing that Jesus has done that for us. So it's a, it's a better uh, tabernacle. It's a better temple. The one on earth was just a copy. So they're like, you know, why, you, you know, why don't you go to the temple? Well, because there's a better one. Verses 12 through 15, there's a perfect sacrifice. Now with the blood of goats and calves, not with, not with that, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained 
eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience. So the old one couldn't, but Jesus will cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is a mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So he's a perfect sacrifice. His blood is far different than the blood of calves and bulls. He's the lamb of God. So not only was the tabernacle that Jesus served in greater, but the sacrifice he brought was greater. We read of the limitations under the old covenant, but the sacrifice of Jesus, what does it do? It brings eternal redemption. You're saved for eternity in Christ. This is, an, this is the amazing thing. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ in this present life, believing that he died on the cross for your sins and he rose from the dead for your justification, he will cleanse you, not just for a little while, he will cleanse you for how long? All of eternity. You will be made right for the rest of your existence. In verse 14, halfway through it, again, not just a cleansing are not just eternal redemption, but he also goes back to this thought that our conscience can be made clean. What is a conscience? Well, I'll give you a definition. Self-awareness that judges whether an act, whether or not an act one is carried out or plans to carry out is in harmony with one's moral standards. The conscience is also functions to make a person aware of actions taken that were wrong. But here's the interesting thing about a conscience. It, is, it has a, a, a moral standard in its thought process. In your mind, you have a moral standard. Is a moral standard the same throughout creation? It's not. Now, God, in the beginning, created man with that sense of right and wrong. But there are people who um, will worship um, another religion and they will have a set of moral standards of what they have to do. And they can act in obedience to those moral standards and still not be doing what God wants them to do. And we can say, well, they're sincere in their worship. Yeah, they're sincere. They're sincerely wrong. Just like you have been sincerely wrong. Has anybody ever done something that's wrong, but you thought you were doing the right thing when you did it? Well, why would you do that? Well, I thought I was doing the right. I thought that's what you wanted. I thought you wanted this color. You know, I thought you wanted that. That's, I, got, I did it because that's what I thought you wanted. Well, that was wrong. Well, I'm sorry. So you can do something and be sincere, and it can align with your, that standard of thought and understanding but it can still be out of place. If you borrow somebody's car and you thought you were supposed to put diesel in it and you weren't, you could have been the most sincere, you know, you know, diesel pumper in the world. But you have just messed up their car. And it's like, why would you do that? Well, I thought, that's, I thought it was a diesel. I thought I should have done that. Well, you didn't. Shouldn't have done that. And so now you're sincerely wrong. So our conscience is, is informed by a standard. 
Where is our conscience informed by? The Word of God. The Word of God informs this. You know, when people run into a conflict with um, the Word of God and how they want to live their life, a choice has to be made. And it's either you, you yield and you bow to the Word of God and say, this is truth and I will live by it, or you say, well, I don't believe this is true anymore. And then you allow yourself to become that standard. It doesn't mean you're right, though. And you can be sincere walking in your own standards now, but you can be sincerely wrong. But with the Lord, when he sees us coming to him guilty and ashamed of what we've done, he comes to liberate us and he comes to cleanse us. You know, guilt is a, is a terrible thing. It brings shame. When you've done the wrong thing, it brings shame. It also can bring avoidance of relationship. If you put diesel in that car, you are not going to look forward to bringing that car to them or them coming to ask for their keys. You're going to avoid them. I remember when I was a little boy. I don't know. I just think of this. When I was a little boy. I was a real little boy. Um, it wasn't even four years old, and we were watching our neighbor's house. Um, they went on vacation. I wasn't watching it. My parents were. But um, they had a dog named Colonel Clink. And um, I got into their garage, and I found a can of silver paint, spray paint. And I spray painted their bikes, their lawnmowers, and Colonel Clink. <laughs> I was only three years old, and you know, um, I, I got in trouble. I don't really remember getting in trouble, but I, I had this vague memory of when they were coming home. And I ran, and I locked myself in the bathroom. And everybody was trying to coax me to come on out of the bathroom. Why? I was... I was ashamed and I was avoiding that relationship. And that's what happens when we walk with a guilty conscience. When our conscience is not clear before the Lord, it's like we want to run and hide. What did Adam and Eve do when they sinned? They ran and hid. You see, you see this is why it's important that we walk in an understanding that we've been, we've been made clean. It can lead to depression and also even more decisions that are wrong. Well, I've already done this, and I might as well just do something else that's just going to mess it all up. And it's just, we can become destructive to ourselves. So this is no small deal to read that the Lord wants to cleanse our conscience. Now, if you are not a Christian, you don't know what this is like with the Lord, but you can know today. The Lord wants to forgive you. He's not, he's not asking you to come to, to him so he can beat you up. He wants to, wants to liberate you. And set you free so you don't have to walk around with that shame and that embarrassment and that depression, avoiding him anymore. But if you're a believer, you say, well, I've already come to the Lord, but man, I have blown it since I've come to Jesus. Well, then what about, where, where do we stand with him? Well, let me ask you a question. When Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, which sins had you committed so far? None of them. All the sins that he died on the cross for were future. So this is the point. He's not surprised at what you've done. He's died for them all. Now, if you're like, well, well that's good. So you're saying I can pretty much go live however I want to. Well, you're still going to have a guilty conscience because you're disobeying him. So this isn't a, a freedom to go sin. This is a freedom to go live. It's a freedom to, to enjoy life and to be set free. 
And that's what the Lord wants to do. I don't know what's going to happen in your relationships with other people that you've sinned against. They may be gracious and kind and forgive you, or they may not. Just depends on who you're dealing with. If you're a believer, forgive them. Show them grace. Let them up off the mat. Don't hold them pinned because of their sin. But you know, you, we don't know what people are going to do, but we do know what God's going to do. And he will forgive you. So even if you are a believer who has made a mess of things and you got shame, I want you to be liberated today in the work of Jesus Christ. And that for that to be removed and to not walk around in the embarrassment and the avoidance of people that are followers of Jesus Christ or in any other way. Walk in the beauty of that forgiveness. In verses 16 through 28, we see that Jesus had to die. We see the necessity of his death. First of all, in verses 16 through 17, um, we, we're going to read about how wills require, like testament and will, a will requires somebody to die. You know, if you are, happen to know that your name's in a will and that you stand to get an inheritance, you're not going to get it until that person dies, Right? So when we read this, look at verse 16, 1, 2, 3, the, like the sixth or seventh word in, for where there is a testament. The word testament, if you back up a few verses and you find the word covenant, they come from the exact same Greek word. So covenant and testament are the same, same Greek word. And in this case, it's being used in the sense of a, of a will and testament. So nobody's going to get the benefits of the will until that person dies. Let's read. For where there is a testament or a will, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator, the one who gave it. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. So Jesus comes with the promise to give better things. So when somebody says, well, you have a king, Jesus, and he died, why? Because he left a will. And we don't get to walk in the life that he has promised until he dies. So this is the picture that's being painted for us. In verses 18 through 23, we see that he also had to die to cleanse that temple in heaven. And he's going to talk here in verses 18 through 23 about how when the tabernacle was being established and inaugurated, they had to sprinkle blood on the congregation, on the implements, on the, the tabernacle itself, and they sanctified it. And so in verses 18 through 23, it makes the same point. And for just the sake of time, if you'll skip down to verse 23... We read, therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but that the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So those opening verses there of 18 to 22 talks about how the old tabernacle was uh, uh, sanctified. But then he says, but the one in heaven. So why did Jesus die? Because there's a will that is enacted upon his death. That all the good stuff can come that we can inherit it. He died because he had to purify that temple in heaven with his own blood. Yeah, this is just amazing to think. I and mean, we don't have a ton of information, but you just wonder about that tabernacle and how it was in heaven there. 
and Jesus knowing the Son of God, the second person that God had knowing one day that he would have to purify that temple with his own blood. And he still came and he still created us. No animal sacrifice was going to be able to uh, purify that temple in heaven. It was going to have to be the, the blood of the Lamb of God. We close in verses 24 through 28. And we read that he died so he could take away our sin. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself. He didn't go to the one in Jerusalem. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as a high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have, have had to offer, uh, to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. We'll stop right there for now. One last phrase after this. So he, he goes into the temple to offer a sacrifice for you. Men live, they die, and you are judged. You will live, you're living. You, one day you will die, and then you will be judged by the Lord. Jesus comes and he does that for us. He lives, he dies, and then he, bearing the judgment of our sin upon his body, presents himself in the temple and purifies the temple and us. And now we don't have to fear judgment day. You don't have to fear. Read book, the book of Jude. It says we're going to stand before him with rejoicing. Wow, it's what, a, what a day it's going to be. But if you don't have Jesus as the one that's gone before you, into heaven, you're not going to just come barging in there on your own. What do you have to bring into the temple? If Jesus is sanctifying it and making a way for us to come in through his blood, what are you bringing to heaven if you're not coming through Jesus? What is it that you're going to offer? We already know you can't bring the blood of bulls and goats. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner, so we can't bring ourselves. The only thing and the only one that can sanctify you is Jesus. You have no other way. And judgment is real and is going to come. The judgment will determine whether you live forever in the presence of God or you live forever separated from God in the lake of fire where there is torment. Jesus wants you to be with him. He's done everything that's necessary to save you. I hope you will receive his offer of love, that you'll be liberated and you'll be cleansed. The last thing we read here, he says... To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So Jesus is coming back. Second coming. He's going to come. He's going to return to this earth. Read it in Revelation. He comes riding on a white horse. He defeats the Antichrist. He rescues Israel. He judges the nations. You come riding along with him if you are a, a saint. And he establishes his kingdom. And this should be our eager expectation. What is it that you're anxious for? I mean that in a good sense. What's the thing you really can't wait to happen? Is it a job? Is it a relationship? Is it a, is it a career? I, what is it? This is what it should be for sure. It's Jesus and him coming again. And it doesn't matter what your view of the, the, the tribulation is. I mean, I'm, I'm pre-trib and I think I'm right. That's why, it's my, that's why I hold that position because I think it's right. Now, some of you are mid-trib. 
and some of you are post-trib. But it doesn't matter what view you hold. I think there's a right one. It doesn't matter what view you hold. There should be an eager expectation that Jesus is coming. And if you hold a view that doesn't allow you to be an expectation of him, you need to change your heart. You need to get your mind on the things of the Lord. Now, pre-trib, I believe he's coming before the great tribulation. And those of you that hold to the mid-trib and post-trib, you're going to be so happy to be wrong. (laughs) You're going to be like, man, I am glad I was wrong and I don't have to go through the great tribulation. We'll explain it to you on the way up. Don't worry about it. There's... You know, all those beans and rice that you stored for the great tribulation, somebody else is going to eat them. They're not going to be eaten by you. And you're like, yeah, but what if you're wrong? Then I'm coming for your beans and rice. (laughs) And you're like, well, I've got guns and ammo. You can't shoot the pastor. You can't shoot somebody that's hungry for food, okay? That's WWJD. He would not do that, okay? So your beans and rice are going to last for about 10 minutes. You keep posting it on the internet that you have, you know, you got all this stuff stored up. Really, do you really want to do that? Somebody's writing all of this down and they know exactly where to come for your stuff. Seriously, eager expectation no matter what your end times view is. If you're not excited to see Jesus come back, why not? Whatever you're hoping in, whatever you're pouring yourself into, it does not compare We need to live for the, and have an expectation that Jesus is about to return and set up his kingdom. That's what we live for. And when that's your eager expectation, everything else is governed by that expectation, isn't it? Have you had an eager expectation before? Something you're like, yeah, I can't wait for this. And everything shifts. Every schedule, every every, uh, goal, every dream begins to move around that. But it's got to be Jesus Christ coming back for you. And when he comes back, he's not coming to to die on the cross again. He's already done that. He's coming that you can fully realize this salvation. You can become and enter into this inheritance he has for you. That's when you will receive it. 